Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. Today's episode is the second part of a four-part conversation featuring Professor Mary Ellen O'Connell talking about themes emerging from her 2019 book, The Art of Law in International Community. O'Connell is the Robert and Marion Short Professor of Law and Research Professor of International Dispute at Notre Dame. Today, O'Connell is joined by Professor Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence and Professor of History at Yale Law School. They discuss the history of legal movements to prohibit the use of force and military aggression. My name is Mary Ellen O'Connell, and I'm here today at Yale University with Professor Sam Moyne, who, in my view, is the leading historian of international human rights. This is a wonderful opportunity to follow on from our first Croc conversation about the art of law in the international community. We really looked into chapter one of the book and the whole impact of realist political ideology on international law in general. But Sam, I think you and I have the opportunity today to do a deep dive into Chapter 2, which looks at one specific rule of international law, the one I think we share a view of being so essential to the flourishing of human rights in the world and legal order in general, and that's the prohibition on the use of force. Chapter 2 of the Art of Law is called prohibiting force through peremptory norms, and it focuses on Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, the prohibition on the use of force. You've written a book chapter that'll be coming out, I believe, in 2021, called From Aggression to Atrocity, Rethinking the History of International Criminal Law. You use the word aggression. In international law, aggression is, of course, a serious violation of the prohibition on, on the use of force. So our two chapters, chapter two and your forthcoming chapter, Aggression to Atrocity, are about the same thing. But as you point out in your chapter, it's unusual for human rights scholars to be concerned with the problem of aggression. So I was both fascinated and drawn to your article, comparing it to chapter two of my book, to find out why a historian of human rights law is concerned and looking at aggression. So, first of all, Mary Ellen, thanks for having me on your podcast, and congratulations on the book and the lectures. The pinnacle opportunity for an international lawyer, I think, is to give these Herr Schlatterpacht lectures, and and yours are are spectacular. Uh, So, it's really a, a privilege to discuss the chapter with you. So, you know, I came of age in the 1990s, and human rights were seen then to be the high point of the tradition of international law and would lead us to actually renovate international law in this new age of respect for the individual rather than the state. But living through the decades we've lived through together since then, I think we can not only worry that the focus on individual human rights has taken away from the old concern for peace, but actually, even worse, sometimes provided a rationale for war, including illegal war. I lived through that working in President Bill Clinton's White House during the Kosovo bombings, which were acknowledged 
to be illegal under the United Nations Charter framework. And in fairness, some you know, preeminent human rights lawyers like Lewis Henkins said so at the time, but others said it was just important to disregard these old frameworks, supposedly obsolete frameworks in the name of human rights. And so what I wanted to do in my chapter, which really does resonate with yours, is just to reflect on the fact that the age of human rights has been the age of the erosion of constraints on the use of force. And I think the results sadly speak for themselves. Right. So your point is well taken. Anyone who's really concerned with human rights has to be concerned with the problem of war. And I think that is the main concern of my entire book, but certainly chapter two on the prohibition on the use of force as a peremptory norm. We both, and I think this is really the synergy in our two looks at this problem, both of our chapters, we both find this turn happening among international lawyers in the U.S. It becomes identifiable right after the adoption of the U.N. Charter, so right after 1945, but it's really picking up momentum, and it's a full turn away. You pinpointed at Vietnam, and I say Vietnam, and then some years later, the full turn happening with the end of the Cold War. So we're really looking at the same phenomenon. We'll get into why I think that change happened. I think that's one of the things we have different paths or we have different emphases. Would you explain to our listeners why you think that turn happened? So uh, to begin with, I, I do agree with you that anyone who's concerned about human rights should prioritize peace. All the empirical studies show that the most grievous threat to human rights is war. And yet, as we're saying, we're living in this age in which human rights can sometimes justify war. But there is this question. So again, in the 1990s, I grew up learning that the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg was an atrocity trial, and more specifically, a Holocaust trial. And that the International Criminal Court, which for a long time did not feature the crime of aggression, was sort of the fulfillment of the Nuremberg legacy. And my paper came out of just my recognition of how misleading a narrative that is, because as you know, and, and say yourself in your book, the Nuremberg trials were in first and foremost an aggression trial. And as I argue, in Vietnam, after the American escalation in 1964-5, international lawyers who claim fidelity to Nuremberg prioritize the worry that it's an aggressive war. And the answer from their opponents is that it's not. And so I see this shift to atrocity happening very let's say, impressively in the immediate aftermath of the revelation of My Lai, uh, this massacre in 1968 that's revealed in 1969. But you're completely right that the Cold War contained what a powerful states like ours might do in response, not to its own atrocities, but to ones around the world. If we think back to the very era of Vietnam, and you think of the Biafran succession, which does give rise, including at this law school, to calls for humanitarian intervention, really for the yes. first time since before World War II, 
and then the Bangladeshi, right. the East Pakistan civil war that leads to the creation of Bangladesh, more or less the same time. But all of that sort of waiting for an opportunity and the, the end of the Cold War provides it. Chronologically, you're, you're right that the 1990s were the age in which it became possible for international lawyers to say those concerns about aggression not only are no longer important, but we're going to pretend that Nuremberg wasn't even about them and instead prioritize the policing of the globe for atrocity. Now, if it worked, I might have a different view of it. That's where we might differ. The trouble is, whether it's against natural law or not, intervention to stop atrocity makes things worse. Well, let, let's get into the natural law and the effectiveness right. in a moment, because you right. just said so many things I would love to pick up on. I We won't have time for all of them, but you make such an important point. I hope you'll emphasize this in a final version of your chapter, the impact of My Lai on this country. And I think that's a hugely important historic point. I've, I brought this out in some of my other work, but not in, in this book. So I'll be assigning your future chapter along with uh, my chapter for my students who are interested in how we came to prohibit through positive law aggression in the USAD bellum and in international criminal law, and then how we diluted it so that we have events happening as we are today. Uh, we're seeing today Turkey invading Syria with virtually no use of the term aggression when certainly the people who drafted the UN Charter would have called that aggression, without a doubt. So you talk about me lie, and I think that is a very helpful cultural explanatory point about how this country looked back in its storytelling, in its histories, to Nuremberg and tried to bring that triumph, that moment of true commitment to law and peace in the world we committed atrocities in the course of that. So to separate us from that, we preferred, and I think throughout our universities, our government, were championing Nuremberg. But that was also the time, and now maybe we'll get into some of the natural law explanation, in which I see the complete and wholesale removal of any natural law thinking from legal theory. And the people we see going into the study of human rights are not coming from an international law background. I think that's in part because international law has to rely on something other than Lockean social contract theories of consent because there's no government, there's no consent, there's just law. And it was always traditionally explained through natural law. It predates the state and the emergence of modern lawmaking bodies where that explain positive mm -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. But the people who wanted to tell a new story of the United States and the world post-Vietnam are inheriting only realist theories of political and foreign policy. And they don't have any rich understanding of the past of international law embedded in natural law. So they are now telling only a positive law story the problem with looking at the prohibition on the use of force through positive law is you can change it. And if realism comes to dominate the view of what you, what you should be doing with military force, you should be projecting power in the world, well, power for good. And I think I don't want to in any way minimize the attractiveness and the power of these ideas. Mm -hmm. 
because I think they led to 30 years to a generation of people thinking that the more important thing to do was humanitarian intervention and that that was far more important and a far greater good in mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. than respecting the prohibition on the use of force. Yeah. I mean, I find your argument in, in the second chapter enormously powerful. On the other hand, there are a couple of worries about a naturalist grounding to international law in general, let alone the prohibition on the use of force in particular. The traditional worry about natural law is that there was no agreement about what its content was. And you could even read the rise of humanitarian intervention and human rights more generally as a return of natural law that couldn't justify its priorities and didn't successfully do so, especially insofar as it eroded the positive law prohibition on the use of force. And that's why the Kosovo bombings, partly because I lived through them very personally, are so burned in my mind because many people, including senior philosophers as well as some international lawyers, insisted that the illegality of the intervention under positive law was undeniable, but almost secondary, given the moral argument in favor of going. And that's also, in a way, a a natural law argument, or it's at least a moral argument. There were perhaps very good reasons why natural law came to be suppressed. But that's not the same as saying whether it didn't play this essential role, which is now missing, and that without it, it is possible. Human beings don't get away from morality. Correct. They have this as a deep instinct. So when we don't have a well-conceived intellectual legal discipline around natural law, we have people inserting their own views. So in Kosovo, we know with the best of intentions, this idea that you could preempt another Srebrenica and save the Kosovars, this seemed like a natural law argument. It was a higher morality principle, and that's what natural law teaches, that there are higher principles. But I think it was the very vacuum of the suppression of real natural law Mm -hmm. that led to this individualistic, Mm -hmm. mixed up idea of humanitarian intervention. Mixed, I mean, not as in confused, but integrated with the realist idea of military force being the greatest power, not the power of ideas, not the power of law. So we can get back to what we should do about having a natural law that actually is acceptable, that can overcome the critique that led to its suppression. But if I could just ask you humbly as for your views as a historian whether and a historian of, of ideas, whether this isn't part of the reality. that it, it is certainly part of the reality. And I wouldn't deny that something like natural law is going to be essential for actors to hold if they're going to take their positive law commitment seriously. But they're still kind of amongst philosophers and legal experts is this first order question, what are our criteria are by which we determine the content of natural law? As you say, there were arguments in a sense on both sides of the Kosovo intervention, and it was actually not a dispute between naturalists and realists. It was a dispute, if you like, amongst naturalists. So I would say 
that my trouble with the erosion of the prohibition on intervention is it's less committed to a big kind of natural law revival because it's more consequentialist. And it says the traditional thing, which is that anytime you license a resort to force, you license pretextual claims, which we've seen have been rife in the human rights age. And second, even to the extent there are good reasons to resort to force under the new permission slips, bad actors will exploit the precedents that you've created. And again, let's leave aside the liberal or American interventions and you know, think about the road to Ukraine and Syria with the Turkish intervention that liberals with the best of intention help pave. So these to make those kinds of claims, I understand that I would need to kind of back my consequentialism, but it's so obvious that these are bad things that I may not need to kind of get metaphysical right away. Well, in my own defense, Sam, sure. I didn't get metaphysical right away. <laughs> That's true. You, That's true. I, I, it was a long time coming. Understood. Um, and I was a student of Lewis Henkin, who you mentioned, and in his office where I worked with him closely for three years, we never breathed the word natural law. Right. And he was a devout, believing man of faith. Correct. We never discussed natural law. He thought it was, as you just described, dangerous, too subjective too open to control and manipulation by a small group that could cause harm to others. He was a huge believer in positive law, but that's because he was not grounded in international law to begin with. Yes. His orientation was around the U.S. Constitution. Correct. And I think as much as he did great things and he was truly a heroic human being, he might have been part of why in mm -hmm. this country, extraordinary academics have gotten off the track. And so I tried for years, especially through my critique on the use of drones outside armed conflict zones right. in violation of the prohibition on the use of force, acts of aggression, to say, look at the parade of horribles, look at mm -hmm. the consequences of what you're doing. You started out by drone attacks in Yemen. There's an unending civil war now in Yemen. Exactly. So we could double, triple these examples, it didn't work. That argument based on consequences, because there's always another technical fix. That's right. You're right. And so that's why I moved to say, what is driving this belief? What is causing what I considered cognitive dissonance? People could see the drone attacks in the history of Yemen, and yet not refuse to put together that it was those attacks that led to this situation of hopeless violence and, and disintegration right. of, a, of a state. Right. I think the return to this perspective that you're, you're sponsoring is noble. I mean, what is interesting is that you, you're, you're arguing for it now in a kind of consequentialist spirit, as if, you know, we, we need to return to it because without it, we would have, we've had bad consequences. But I totally agree with you that you know, someone like Lou Henkin, who kind of honorably to me denied the presence of human rights in his own faith tradition of Judaism, and for that reason wanted to rely not just on 
the American Constitution as his source. Also left some, you know, complicated legacies in the rise of foreign affairs law as a kind of template, including at my law school for what it means to think about and practice international law. But, you know, the, the trouble is the same is true of a very long tradition of those who claimed fealty to a natural law framework for international law. So we could get very detailed here in the early modern period when these claims were popular. But if you take Alfred von Ferdros, who is... Who I an, do in the book. You do, exactly. Uh, an amazing figure. And yet he, after having been a student of Hans Kelsen's, was very deeply connected to the inner war, so-called Austro-fascist experiment between 1934 and 1938. And for that matter, many other um, Central European kind of advocates of natural law had a, a very kind of murky uh, period there in between the 30s and 40s. I do want to add, though, that I do think that even though we could worry that sometimes the claim to natural authority is a tool of the powerful, that's the way it's generally worked, it is often the claim that the weak can use to try to change their situation. And a good example of that, if you haven't seen it, is Umut Ozu's scholarship on the origins of Kogan's claims in international law, since that's such a big part of that brilliant chapter you've done. He argues that we really have to see the rise of claims to there being a category of Kogan's norms, most notably in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, as a specifically post-colonial project, when these states thought that international law could kind of complete decolonization for them, which they thought had reached such strict limits. So I think we should acknowledge that the claim of nature is has some potential uses. But in the end, I think we also have to consider, you know, where is it leading for whom in the name of which values, who's getting to claim its authority, and what are the outcomes? Well, I want to say that I hope I don't overdo the defense of natural Not law in the chapter, because I do point out Samuel Pufendorf as a really problematic figure in this history. He tried to remove the positive law aspects. Correct. And this was part of what how I explain why international lawyers lost, began to lose their interest in natural law. Yes. And th there, there have just been some very highly problematic figures, thinkers, who have given natural law a bad name. It has to be handled carefully. I, that's absolutely the case. But I'm convinced through this research that collectively we can revive what is important and essential for law in the natural law tradition. I want to continue with a point you were making, looking at the project of liberation, of self-determination, having been seen in the Global South as a natural law project, and look at who contemporary spokespeople for natural law are that I cite in the chapter. The leading figure is probably the Brazilian judge on the International Correct. Court of Justice, Consado Trindade, Correct. and then his predecessor, who, who writes poetically, absolutely beautifully, the Sri Lankan Christopher Viramantri, a Buddhist. Yes. So I understand the hunger in the world for a renewal of international law, and I think it can come through this means. But one of the things I try to do more, not in chapter two, but in chapter one, is mm -hmm. to say, if we're going to go this way, it has to be with eyes wide open. As you've pointed out absolutely correctly, there are real pitfalls to this path. 
it has to be with the understanding that positive law is the bulk of it and that we use the explanations of natural law sparingly, then if we can bring them to true shared space, ideas outside particularized religious views, we might really through moral philosophy, aesthetic philosophy I propose in particular, see what is missing from the law we have to get to the world we want. It's a, a, a lovely vision. And, and I, again, I, if it leads in the right direction, which is, of course, a normative question, then I'm all for it. And I really like the insistence on pluralism, just because many of the figures we've named, let's say that there's a correlation, especially in modern times between natural law and, and specifically Roman Catholic jurists. And some of those you named, you know, fit that description. But then, you know, we're Montre is is an exception. And I think there there is a space within natural law traditions to have a sense of convergence between the secular and religious and different uh, denominations amongst the religious. So that's all very promising. You know, my own view is that what's especially salutary is that we so much agree about the need to retrieve the imperative of peace from the wreckage of our times. I think we can have a, a constructive return to natural law is to understand what it has taught us as a historical matter without necessarily trying to recreate a working methodology of natural law. So take the wisdom that was developed through natural law thinking over time that has withstood the test of time as another kind of natural law factor or mechanism. And if we look at it that way, we come right back to your point that the most important thing law does is to be antithesis to violence. And that means that the greatest violence, which is be among communities, war, has to be at the heart and center and the beginning place of any set of rules. Looking into the world today, I'm a little bit hopeful by some of your comments. Maybe it's a result of the disasters that have come with this idea that you can use military force for all these goods, human rights, or arms control, or counterterrorism, maybe we've finally come to the point where the consequentialist is actually working? As you say, it, it may be too weak a foundation on which to build a kind of coalition against war in our time. But it's also the case that consequentialism, just because of how badly these interventions have gone, it is, you know, is is something on which we could rely to achieve a thinner consensus, at least initially. Mm -hmm. But I, as an old college professor who, you know, would put lots of stock in the teaching of not just of past authors, but of, you know, familiar canonical authors, I do think it's critical to have this debate about whether there are any natural norms and what they are in the history of philosophy before students. Otherwise, you do kind of settle all the questions in advance when they ought to be debated. And the idea that we could come into an international law class and not have morality be the central topic seems bizarre. So I, I'm with you there. I do think if we're honest, we have to kind of get at how much diversity there is in the annals. One of my favorite thinkers named Judas Schlar 
who wrote a book about Nuremberg, principally called Legalism, published in 1963. She remarks in that book that one of the pleasures of those who don't happen to be partial to natural law thinking is to look at the raucous variety of those making claims in the name of the same nature, as if, you know, it were obvious what's in it. But maybe that's all we need for the this imperative, as you so rightly said. I look at in the chapter that truly the greatest minds that we all accept in international law, Grotius, Lauderpact, Frank, they all understood that the prohibition on the use of force was a natural law norm right. at the heart of the thing. I, right. I personally would be happy if we would just accept that and accept that that's the ancient, the universal acceptance of what law is about. And with that understanding, perhaps then we can take a fresh look at positive law on human rights, on international relations, and build the next generation of international law, which I think has got to follow from this moment. It seems to me a historical moment of tumult, of transition, the end of the post-Cold War era. And hopefully your chapter and mine will be part of what our students will take into that next generation. I hope so. Want to make some concluding remarks? Well, well I, I have so much more to say, um, uh, just uh, because your chapter is so rich and productive. You know, one of the keys in this debate, which I, we, I hope will lead in our direction, is the very insightful observation you make that the exceptions to rules are part of the rules and not abrogations of the rules. And of course, when you make that argument, you have in mind a very narrow set of exceptions like the self-defense, the self-defense rule. And yet, you know, one worry is that, you know, many of our enemies in international law are, are precisely trying to build in a humanitarian exception. I mean, more interestingly, going back to Kogan's, is that these very post-colonial states that are agitating for a natural grounding to a universal prohibition on force in th those very years and things like the Friendly D Relations Declaration are offering their own exceptions for national liberation struggles and so forth. So we could, in a sense, we have to look out for getting agreement that there's a natural prohibition against force, but then lose all of our our struggles to kind of contain the exceptions. And that, that seems a big danger, even within your framework. Well, I think that's one of the things that chapter really tries to do that's new in legal analysis is to take seriously this accepted use Kogan status, peremptory norms. You won't meet a single international lawyer who will deny that the prohibition on the use of force is a peremptory norm, Correct. use Kogan's. And then three quarters of them, maybe maybe only two thirds these days, would say, but I can't tell you anything else after that. And I think humanitarian intervention is great. So right. we've got a real mismatch. There yeah, is some yeah. deep-seated tradition or Correct. internal sense that you can't really have an open right to use force and have a legal system. These are mutually yes. exclusive ideas. But then everyone gets on board with what the exceptions should be. 
And I, th one of the things I really tried to argue in the chapter, and I think this will have some appeal to excellent lawyers, you can't start reading in exceptions without undermining the basic rule. And Yus Kogans tells you, if it doesn't tell you anything else, it's to be conservative about how you're interpreting that core rule. Exactly. And so maybe that's one thing we'll that's, start That's seeing. extremely helpful as a, as a way of, of both str struggling for more acknowledgement of a natural basis for a universal prohibition and using that very gr new grounding or old grounding to contain the exceptions to that prohibition from kind of proliferating. So that seems very promising as a kind of, whether or not it's philosophically persuasive as a political strategy of getting more consensus amongst international lawyers and someday states, it's very, very powerful. Now I'm going to cheat a little bit and come back to where you started our conversation. If you look at the Turkish invasion of Syria that began on October 9th, 2019, Syria put forward a letter to the Security Council, a nice technical positive law obligation under Article 51, self-defense under the UN Charter, you must report to the Security Council. They checked all those boxes. The content of their justification to preempt future terrorist attacks from the Kurds. Sure. There's nothing in the charter on that. Of course not. And it, of course, this is a very there similar is in article. George W. Bush's exactly uh, you know, 2002 and national 2006. Strategy. And it's not that much better in the Obama era right. national security strategies. But in through the lens of Turkey, the Kurds, Syria, Russia, Trump, Iran, Iraq, we are seeing perhaps what happens when you do not pay attention and you do not respect positive law, let alone the natural law. So this may be the moment when we can really grab the teaching opportunity. I agree. And just out in the world, certainly in American politics, and I think beyond, there is exhaustion with endless war. I always say that we've had two presidents in a row, Obama and Trump, who ran as anti-war candidates, even though they've governed as endless war presidents. And I think that shows that in this country and certainly beyond, there's a fatigue because these wars are not leading where they were promised. The fact that they're illegal makes it even worse. So that does give us an enormous opportunity for as teachers of international law for getting people to take seriously what they thought could just be you know, treated well, as but here's, fictional or... To, I, I think you're quite right, but here's what worries me at night. Yes, there's war fatigue. Will it be international law that fills the vacuum? Right. If we're going to abandon these policies that led to endless wars, the realist projection of military force as being the determinant of who counts in the world, who gets to mm -hmm. call the exception as our, mm -hmm. as Carl Schmidt, somebody we both talk about in our work, Will it necessarily be international law, let alone the ancient wisdom of prohibiting right. military well, force? Well, moments of opportunity tend to be also moments of danger and threat. And so that's why your work is so important, because it's really about rallying people to make the right choice rather than the wrong choice. And to try to give them the sense of what an attractive idea this is. Correct. It's not like in our first episode, George Lopez said, 
something about international law being boring. And I'm afraid that's the reputation it's gotten, something right. technical. Right. You have to send your letter to the Security Council. You've done your international law. What right. could be less important? Right. But the idea that we could actually create a world in which resources flow to climate change, toward ending gross disparities of wealth, if we could really start thinking about these underlying causes of atrocity, exactly. of the causes of war, but to attract this next generation there, well, of course, we're educators, so we know what we'll be doing, but whether those ideas will catch on. That's right. I think they can because, you know, even those deeper causes are clearly only open to resolution on a global scale, and that means through international law. And on that message, I'm going to thank you again, Sam. This thank has you. been such a delight. It's a privilege to be with you. You've been listening to the CrocCast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.